The January sales are nearly here. One of the images that goes with this time of year, whether it's Christmas or those January sales, is people weighed down by plastic bags full of gear they've brought for themselves and their loved ones. Even in a world where we buy more and more online, much of that stuff is clothes. But how much do we know about the clothes we buy and the system behind them, their journey from cotton field to rubbish dump? When your favourite brand says it sources materials sustainably, what does that actually mean? When a fast fashion chain encourages you to donate your unwanted goods because they support circularity, where do those used clothes actually end up? Is there an ethical and sustainable way to carry on buying whatever we want? Or is the very premise of modern fashion incompatible with progressive values? Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Maxine Beda, who's the author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment, and is also founder and executive director of the New Standards Institute. Maxine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with this time of year. We've just had Christmas. The sales are upon us. You must feel quite a lot of ambivalence about this kind of time of goodwill because you must watch these people laden down with these bags with a jaundiced eye to an extent. Yes, it has um, <laughs> impacted the Christmas spirit, I suppose, in that it is just very hard to see, given the state of the world in which we live in, to just see at this stage, we are now laden with a lot of things that I would hazard a guess most of us don't even like the things that they are given, <laughs> and at least part of it. And there's no way for these product, certainly not for our clothing. And so it is, it's kind of the apex of this consumption world in which we find ourselves in. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a great clothes buyer, I have to admit. And I'm fortunate enough to have a very fashionable father and a very fashionable brother-in-law who give me their clothes when they no longer think they're at the height of fashion. So I'm not guilty of some of the things in your book. Although I did think the other day that my parents both buy me a jumper every Christmas. And then every year or so, I go through my jumper drawer and there are moth-eaten jumpers, which I have to get rid of, which seems like a fairly futile exercise. But yes, clothes are such a central part of this time of year. And yeah, it seems to me even more important that people hear your message. So Maxine, before we get into the book, which is a fantastic book, I mean, I, I, I found it really engrossing and although on some occasions quite depressing as well. Just tell me a bit about yourself and what led you to write the book. Hmm. It was a, a bit of a long, winding journey. I'm a lawyer by background, but was working, doing both sort of corporate law, but then working as well in the United Nations and even before law school. And I realized that there was a connection between the work of the UN at that time, it was called the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals. 
And I started to connect the dots between those goals, which all seem so separate with how markets are created and how much people are paid and how we consume them. And I I got to work in the Rwandan Criminal Tribunal in Tanzania, where I got to see markets in the weekends, not during work. And I just started to really see how and started to research how markets are formed, the kind of global trade and got interested in the fashion sector because it was such a power player and because fashion drives culture in ways that I think the UN at that stage didn't really realize. And so that was my first beginnings. I started with a nonprofit in the space. And then I actually, with a friend, we launched a venture-backed company working on transparent supply chains in the fashion industry. And then That work eventually led to my current work at the New Standard Institute and writing the book, just really wanting to understand myself, not how kind of the very best suppliers work in the space, but how does your average clothing come to be and what is our relationship and and where does it go from there with the hopes of getting that information out in a clear way, helping to pave the way to make real improvement in this sector. So I was first drawn to your book when I heard that it was about the kind of journey of a pair of jeans from the cotton field to the landfill site. And actually, as you explained early on, you haven't tried to follow a specific pair of jeans because that would involve that contrivance would actually mean you'd miss out on several of the important parts of it. But nevertheless, that is what the book is, is how it's structured around the kind of life cycle of garments. And I want to go on that journey with you in our conversations today, Maxine. So let's start with the raw materials. You start in a cotton field in Texas. So so tell us about where the raw materials for our clothes come from and, and some of the issues, and, and in particular, this kind of question, more and more companies now claim that their raw materials are sustainable or organic or whatever. But uh, as I think you want to point out, we need to interrogate some of those claims. Yeah. So Because this was a story of jeans, we started in a cotton field. If this was the story of just an average pair of clothing today, it would actually start in an oil rig because the number one fiber source today is actually synthetics, plastic-based material, polyester. But in this instance, jeans are still, by and large, there's some polyester mixed into it, but still by and large made from cotton. So that is why I found myself on a, on a cotton field in Texas, cotton fields, I should say. And in going down to Texas, and the United States is still a significant grower of cotton, along with places like China and India. And I wanted to understand, because as somebody who you know lives in New York, we don't get much interaction with farmers. And it seems so obvious that being organic like is the right thing. So I wanted to understand why farmers were making that decision or were not. And I was definitely enlightened along the way. One, The one part being, I hadn't really realized, being the city slicker that I was, <laughs> that farming is so risky. And I think that it's something that, you know, I use my, I work with my brain, I work with my fingers, I work with my voice, but nothing of what I do is related to the weather. And spending time with farmers, just seeing how one 
weather pattern change can completely dictate, you know, the outcome for a whole year was definitely eye-opening and just gave me a new respect for the type of risks that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And in speaking to the organic farmer and then speaking to scientists thereafter, what I also understood is that he himself, Carl Pepper, the farmer that I got to spend the most time with on the organic cotton field, thought that the best outcome was not something organic, but actually that the organic standard, which really just looks at what type of inputs, making sure that the inputs on the farm are not using synthetic chemicals, that that was actually not focused on the thing that he found the most important, which was the soil health. And that has become like regenerative agriculture, even since that conversation that I had with him about two years ago, two and a half years ago at this stage, has definitely increased in importance now. But it was a realization to me to realize that the organic standard actually isn't about how healthy the soil is and therefore how much carbon it can absorb. It's really about the chemical inputs that are put into it. So first realizing that organic doesn't mean sustainable was something that was very eye-opening to me. And then I spent time not just with Carl, but with a conventional, the kind of the synthetic farmers. And they said, you know, it's a really, and Carl said this as well, it's a really big risk for farmers to take to change their whole ways of how they've been taught farming. In addition, you know, it's adding more risk to an already risky enterprise. And then they have three years to wait after making these investments to be able to certify their fields as organic. And therefore, so they don't get any financial upside until only three years later. And they won't know at that stage how much the organic product, in this case, cotton, is trading at compared to conventional. So whether they actually make out better financially as a result or not. So I think it was just very, it was very helpful to spend time and eye-opening to really understand what's going on, what is motivating farmers and kind of where do we where do we need to go? Maybe not just looking at chemical inputs, but real really focusing on soil health. And then what are the financial incentives that we could help provide farmers to ensure that they are being able to take these risks and taking them on? Yeah, and, and I don't want to give away what seems to me to be the big message of the book. We'll come to that later. But but part of what I took from this story is that there are more sustainable and there are better ways of producing the raw materials for clothes. But but don't kid yourself that the vast majority of clothes will involve using up the planet in various ways, whether it's using fossil fuels or whether it's, you know, cotton, which is an incredibly water intensive crop. So, you know, by all means, look at the label, try to be with buy things from companies that seem to be trying to do the right thing. But in the end, at least at the aggregate level, from the fact that we are consuming more and more clothes. Let's turn to the second stage in this in this process, which is manufacture, where things are made. And I think what you really want to draw our attention to there is the complexity often of these supply chains and how often companies make claims, but these claims are just about the very end of the supply chain. They don't go into what is happening as it were, below the surface. And you, of course, went and saw some people who are involved in some of the less attractive parts of that supply chain. 
Yeah, from the the cotton fields in Texas, I then went to China to look at the textile mills. And when we think about the environmental impact of our clothing, it's really happening at this textile mill. And so just to be clear, the textile mill is where the fiber comes in, whether that's polyester, cotton, acrylic, and it comes in as a raw fiber. It's clean, sort of straightened, spun, woven or knit, dyed and finished to however we need it finished into a textile. And that's the, in terms of the climate impact of the fashion industry and the fashion industry is responsible from anywhere between four and 8% of total greenhouse gas emissions globally. That's more than France, Germany, and the UK combined in terms of its impact. And it's really happening at this stage in the life cycle of our garment. And that's because all of those stages that I described take enormous amounts of energy to perform each task. Dyes don't naturally love fibers. And so it's massive amounts of heat that is used in these stages to to get to our textile. And all of this is happening in places, predominantly China, but elsewhere as well, but really predominantly coal-based power grids. And so now we have a, a system, I'm sure we'll speak about this more, that is producing more and more clothing at having changing us from a you know, seeing clothing as something that we pass down from one generation to something that young people find clothing old after wearing it just once or twice. And then we're doing this in places that have a very dirty energy grid. And so that's why this stage, um, it's also where the chemicals are applied. And this is, you know, the real hotspot in terms of the environment. And you said, you mentioned that it's, you know, seen It is often described as a very complex supply chain that the fashion industry has. But I think it's important to recognize that there's nothing innately complex about this supply chain. It has been made to be complex because the fashion industry transitioned from an industry where in the 1960s in the United States, 95% of clothing that Americans wore was American made. To today, that figure is less than 2%. And in that the globalization that happened, there were no rules put in place for how those trade agreements would put countries together. And so you had then this kind of middle market, middleman players that came in and said, okay, we're going to help you find brand. We're going to help you find the cheapest places to produce. And so brands went from being actually born out of factories to not dealing with production at all and just designing and not some cases not even designing their garments and just really marketers of clothing. And so that's how we've had this very broken supply chain where the companies themselves don't even know where their production is is happening in many instances. Yeah, and I have direct experience of that myself in that one of the roles I've recently had was heading up the body that that oversaw the work of labor market inspectors in the UK. And one of the industries that caused us the most concern was indeed the the fashion industry. And if you take the city of Leicester, which is probably the center of fashion manufacturing in, in the UK, what became very clear, particularly during COVID actually, because there were quite big COVID outbreaks in, in Leicester, was you know factories 
where the conditions were pretty terrible, where minimum wage wasn't being paid, where when inspectors turned up, they locked the doors at the front and ran out, got people to run out of the back. Benefit fraud, tax fraud. But also that even those factories were not the kind of bottom of the supply chain because actually, you know, also every night vans were driving around delivering half-made clothes to people who were working in their kind of basements to to finish them off. That, you know, this is a very kind of fragmented system. And the other thing I kind of learned is that the companies always claimed that they were trying to do the right thing because they would look at the factories at the top of the supply chain and they would look also what those factories claimed to be doing. What they wouldn't do so much is what those factories were actually doing and then how those factories themselves were subcontracting to smaller factories or even to people working out of, of their home. And the point that I heard made a number of times was, you know, the large companies, and, you know, these were big companies making an awful lot of money for the people who owned them, they claim they're trying to do the right thing, but the very pricing mechanisms, the way they price things, the way they make people compete on price and and produce things at speed means that it is inevitable that people will cut corners absolutely inevitable it's built into the business model mm-hmm. i think that's something that chimes with what you saw isn't it maxine yes absolutely how we got to this place i think i think is important so first i think it's important to recognize as you mentioned from your own background and experience is that this industry is one of the least regulated industries that we have on this planet and so part of the problem is we don't have laws <laughs> And so what has happened in this, this isn't the case for domestic labor, but if you think about what's happening in the UK, but on a global scale, is that companies are seeking out production partners and production areas where there's the least enforcement. And so countries are actually being pitted against each other to have the least amount of protections and enforcement to attract the brands to be there. And so that's why you have Bangladesh, for example, being a major global hub of production. So on the one hand, it's very little regulated industry. And on the other, as you mentioned, clothing production is different from, say, how our phone is produced, or our car is produced, in that it doesn't take much capital to start up these factories. And in fact, doesn't require a factory. As you mentioned, it can just be somebody in their home with a sewing machine. And so that's why it's this kind of combination of things that it becomes such an exploited industry. And what companies have done, so in that shift from production by and large happening in the place in which the garment is actually worn to this globalized system, is that the companies at that time that globalization was really taking shape is the companies were arguing not to include environmental or social standards in these trade agreements. And so you had this sort of then that kind of race to the bottom in terms of where can production happen the cheapest way possible, meaning with the lowest standards. And so then you had in the 90s, it didn't take long for journalists to find these sort of these sweatshops. Nike was very severely implicated in these instances in the 90s. And out of that came this auditing system. And so instead of at that time companies saying, okay, we really need to take responsibility and partner with our factories and really know what's going on and make sure that workers are being paid you know, a living wage and have safe working conditions, this audit of multi-billion dollar industry came up 
that put distance between the brand and any incident that might happen in a facility. And so that's why when you have instances like the Rana Plaza building collapse, which happened in 2013, in which over a thousand garment workers, mainly women, died in Bangladesh, the factories whose labels were found in there said, well, this was an unauthorized facility that they didn't have authority to work there. And as you said, it was them turning a blind eye to the fact that these audited factories then subcontract to unaudited factories and even the audited factories themselves, the brands don't publish the audits. So there's not really incentive for the brands to work with the factories to improve conditions because that hasn't been the name of the game. The name of the game has only been that a brand can say, we've done this audit, these are our standards, and the factory just wasn't in compliance with our stated standards. And that's not enough. We know that. Like, If you think about taxes, I I make this example in the book, if there wasn't some threat that I would go to jail if I didn't pay taxes, I think we would be far less likely to just on our own, you know, pay the taxes we're expected to, to pay every year. So it becomes a system without real teeth. And that's why we have such a exploitative system today. So having described the challenges of the kind of manufacturing process, you move then on the journey into retail and and you tell two stories there, which I think people may recognize, although I think you tell the story particularly vividly in the book. So one is the story of Wallace White working in the retail sector and particularly in the misnamed fulfillment centers of our most well-known online retailer. But you also talk about consumer capitalism as this kind of machine for generating dissatisfaction and want and and the effect that that has on us and the decisions that we make and indeed on our kind of well-being. But I'm going to take you to the step beyond that, Maxine, which is some of the most fascinating material in the book, which was around what happens to clothes when we no longer want them because so many of those things that have been in our Christmas presents and are going to be bought in the January sales are not going to be worn a lot and they're going to end up going somewhere else. And you look first at what happens to those clothes in New York and where they end up and how some of them are reused and resold, many are not. And then you travel to Ghana and look at the kind of final destination of those clothes and reveal, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story. In some ways, you know, it, and I, this is one of the things I liked about the book, the book is not all doom and gloom. There are really fantastically positive stories in this book about the pride and professionalism, for example, of the waste disposal workers in New York that you talked to, or the creativity of the market stall holders in in Ghana or or people in Ghana who are repurposing goods and making fantastic designs. So there's a lot of really fascinating stuff. I learned a lot (laughs) from the book. But in the end, in the end, you find yourself standing in some peril by reading it at the top of a pile of discarded stuff, much of it made up of clothing in a kind of burning landfill site in Ghana. And you tell us the truth about this comfortable notion that more and more of our clothes are just going round and round and round and, and, and isn't that great and it's much more sustainable. It's not really like that, is it, Maxine? No. And first, thank you for mentioning that there there are, the book is supposed to be positive. <laughs> it is meant to be realistic. And I think from that, you know, realism in, in explaining, you know, just the challenges of the industry, where we are at with the industry, also for me helps really highlight 
what progress we really can make and how we've kind of been led to believe that it is all just inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. We actually, there are a lot of things that we can do about it too. And as you mentioned, the unionized waste disposal worker or the wonderful creativity coming out of Ghana, I think are are solid examples of that. But yes, I found myself in Accra in Ghana in Teme Landfill, which is the, the landfill that services Contamanto Market, which is a very large secondhand clothing market in Ghana, one of the largest in Western Africa. And I wanted to see where our, our clothing does go to die. And, and as I approached the landfill, there was a lot of smoke. And I thought, well, maybe it's because it's a very industrial area by a port. And as I got closer, the smoke was getting more intense. And then I realized there was a fire happening in the landfill itself. And the landfill had been planned to be separated into four quadrants. This is how you are supposed to safely manage a landfill so that if there is an incident that happens in one quadrant of the landfill, it doesn't impact the entire landfill. But in part because of this excess waste that was coming in primarily from Europe in the secondhand clothing, that management had to go out the window and the entire landfill, those quadrants were filled up and it was just one burning landfill. And so I was at the top of this. I managed to get there early enough that I got to the top of this burning landfill and looking around at this very bleak scene of black smoke that would just burn my eyes if the wind took it in in my direction and of course, the smell of burning plastic and thinking, I should probably go now. This would be a really bad way to die. It was having gone on that journey from Texas to China, to Bangladesh, where the cut and sew is taking place, back to the US to speak to shoppers and Amazon distrib- distribution workers, then to Ghana and thinking, all of this burning and waste is happening for a product that people aren't even enjoying, you know, for a, for a long time. And it really was just a very crystal clear picture of kind of a, a snapshot of, of where we are in this industry today. So there were two kind of big ideas. There were lots and lots of smaller ideas and stories. And I, uh, reading the book, I kept talking to my wife about things that I'd learned. It was, it was fantastic. But there was kind of two big stories that I took out of the book, Maxine. The first was, and you don't actually use this quote, but it, I kept thinking of William Morris and his statement that we should only have two types of things, things which are functional and things that are beautiful. And I kept thinking, you know, if our clothes were either functional, that is to say long-lasting and hardy and kept us warm or whatever, or really genuinely beautiful, beautifully made, well, we wouldn't, for a start, be buying. We'd only be buying a fraction of what we buy now because an awful lot of what we buy is neither functional nor really beautiful. So that's one message. And that links with really the story you do tell in the book, which is that you know there are lots of things that we can do better and there are people striving to do things better and you talk about them. But in the end, we are just going to have to stop buying so much stuff. Yeah, that is, de- that is definitely one of the messages. But I think 
I didn't go into writing the book with the thesis of what I wanted to say. I went into the book really just wanting, I knew that with my work at the New Standard Institute that we would be advocating for certain policies. And I thought it was very important that in doing so, I actually understood what was happening on the ground. And so that was really the impetus for me to to get started on this research and writing the book. And it was only from that, from that research and and from that, you know, the experiences of meeting the people along the way that I came to, to see, you know, to see that theme really, really, you know, bubble up to the fore. But I also saw, you know, you, you mentioned there's a chapter in, in speaking to shoppers that so much of what we think of as like consumer demand, you know, it's always described as, oh, the consumer is demanding this consumer demand. So much of that consumer demand is manufactured. These are things we are told we want to buy. And I am somebody who grew up on fast fashion. I grew up on H&M. I grew up, you know, when that store opened in New York, I was so excited and, you know, you know, as a tourist, you know, ran in with great delight. And I gotten to see through through this research that so much of that has been manufactured and that it's left, you know, it left me. And then I understood most others very unhappy and having an unhappy and unhealthy relationship with their own things. And so that's why, you know, it's not, I don't, I have come to not see this as a sacrifice at all. In fact, it's a way by taking the power back really of our closets, we really can take, you know, control back of our own, you know, mental health. And so it's not like, oh, we have to sacrifice for the good of the planet. It's actually, we get to do the right things for ourselves, which ends up being the right thing for the planet and the people that are producing our things. And that, conveniently enough, Maxine, is exactly what I thought the second message was, which is, I thought to myself, as I put the book down, that I thought about the journey I've taken in terms of the food that I eat. And so, you know, when I was younger, I would eat anything, you know, and I didn't really care about the ingredients or where it came from or, and now that's changed. And now I wouldn't eat food full of kind of random E numbers and weird chemicals and loads of sugar and salt. And I wouldn't eat food that I didn't think had been made in a reasonably ethical and sustainable manner. And I'm not perfect, but I'm a mindful food shopper. But I don't think I'm a mindful clothes shopper. And I think that what your book does by the end is it makes me look at any garment and think, okay, so that's come from somewhere. What's been involved in the process behind it? It's been made by somebody. What might have been involved there? And what am I going to do with this garment? How do I feel about this garment? Is it just something I'm buying on an impulse and that I might never wear or throw away? Or is it something that I've actually, I feel a connection to? I did an event many years ago, Maxine, and and someone asked the best question about consumerism that I've ever heard, actually. They said at an event where we were talking about consumption and consumer capitalism, and the question they said is, I don't know what the problem is, this questioner said. Is it that we care too much about the things we buy or that we care too little about the things that we buy? And it is actually the latter. It's not that we should stop buying and stop wanting things. You know, our relationship to things is part of our lives. But what we should do is want to have a richer relationship 
to those things and to understand the value of them lies in the story of them as well as that instant moment of gratification that we might get as we walk to the till. I got all of that from the book. Is is that partly what you were trying to get across as well, Maxine? Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm pleased that the message came across. It's an invitation to really love your things. And that is a message of the book. And then I think if I could just add one more is that what I saw through the reading the history is that we've been trained and raised to see ourselves as consumers first and citizens second or maybe never. And so part of what I was trying to get at in the book is both to have an invitation to build a healthier, happier relationship with your own wardrobe and have more awareness of what goes into making each product, but that to change these things on a fundamental level is very possible, but that we have to engage as citizens to make that happen. And so that was kind of the the two messages that I, I hope got across in the book is one kind of what can we do as individual people who buy clothes? And then what is the power that we have as citizens to create the necessary laws, the kind of rules for doing business so that it doesn't have to always be our, you know, on our shoulders and everybody else's shoulders to to do the right thing when we are in an environment inundated, especially young women through social media, inundated with messages to consume. And so that is what I, I hope got imparted in the book is the power that we truly have that I didn't realize in writing this book, but saw through the research and the power that we can have over our own wardrobe as well. So it might be too late or maybe ungracious to take back those clothes you were given for Christmas. And indeed, I hate to tell you that if you do take them back, many clothes manufacturers will simply send them off into that chain of of some reuse, but ultimately landfill. But it's not too late to make a New Year's resolution. And if you want to make a New Year's resolution about the way in which you buy and use and think about clothes, then first of all, check out the work of the New Standards Institute. You can find its website, but it's also on all social platforms, as far as I can see, doing great stuff. But in particular, get hold of a copy of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. It will change the way you think, the way you shop, and the way you wear. Maxine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.